I was only 23 years old, but man, this was my career. And within a short period of time, I booked my first speech and then a second speech. And I, I uh, started to do these speeches on customer service. I found out that's what I loved more than anything. Even when I worked in the gas stations, they were self-serve gas stations. However, I would go out and I would help people pump their gas. I would even check their oil, even though that's something we didn't do. I would just you know, deliver great service. I wanted these people to keep coming back and visiting our stations rather than the ones across the street. You're listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, The Business of Thought Leadership, where we believe it's super important for you to have a clear personal brand so that you can stand out from the sea of sameness and differentiate yourself from your competitors. I'm your co-host, Nikki Ballou. I'm your other co-host, Michael Palmer. And Michael, am I excited about our guest today? He is known as one of the world's top thought leaders when it comes to customer service. I am speaking, of course, of the one, the only, the legendary Shep Hyken. Shep, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Legend in whose mind? <laughs> At least mine. How about that? All right. I'll take it. I'll take it. So, okay. but no, thanks for the great intro. This is a great, uh, great show that you guys have. Thanks for having me on it. Oh, thank you for uh, our pleasure. being a guest on the show. We really appreciate it. So Shep, the name of this podcast is The Business of Thought Leadership. Our listener is very interested in Knowing your story, understanding how you came from where you started to be this well-known thought leader in the space of customer service. So tell us your backstory. Sure. And just, you know, off the top, this isn't something like I went to college for and knew I wanted to do. However, it pretty much happened right out of college. But we can go all the way back to about the age of 12, where I performed a magic show for a birthday party. There were a bunch of six-year-old kids sitting in front of me. And when I came home, uh, my mom and dad and brother and sister sitting around the dinner table, and I'm telling them about the show. And my mom says, what are you doing after dinner? And I thought, oh, I don't know, homework? And she goes, nope, you're going to write a thank you note. Ah, great idea. And that was the first lesson in customer service. My dad, who always tried to one-up my mom, said, great idea, but what I would do is after they received the note in a week, call them up and thank them again and ask the parents what they thought of the show. And if they liked the show, ask if there was, and there was another sibling of the, the kid that I was doing the show for. He had a little, little sister. He said, find out when that sister's birthday is. Find out uh, the names and numbers of the parents who are in the back of the room watching their kids being entertained. And if you did a great job, they'll be willing to hire you again and give you those names and numbers. And he was right. The show was good, good enough to get that information. And I did that with every magic show that I did within a year. I'm doing eight to 10 magic shows a week. Uh, wow. Really make it. A, yeah, I know. It's like I'm making more money than my teachers. And um, I also, my, my parents were pretty smart. My mom made me get a summer job from about the age of about 14 and I started uh, pumping gas. I jokingly say I was in the oil business. Nice. And I pumped gas. And I did that on, on uh, the summers. And then when I graduated high school and went to college, about halfway through college, I continued to work with them, did my magic shows, doing great. I, I enjoyed uh, working at the gas stations too and doing that work. Uh, didn't do it in the first part of college, but halfway through college, 
the company came back and offered me a full-time job. Uh, during the week, I would work in their marketing and operations department. And on the weekends, I'd go out and work in a gas station. And we had, oh, about 100 some odd gas stations at the time I started working there. And uh, I thought, well, this is great. I was still performing magic. By that time, I'd worked, uh, started working in nightclubs. Well, by the way, at age 16, I was doing comedy and magic at the Playboy Clubs. Oh, my that God. That must have been rough on you. Job <laughs> for a 16-year-old young man. <laughs> and, um, so I was working in nightclubs through college, working for the oil company. And when I graduated college, uh, pretty much went on the road to become a region manager. Within a few months, they brought me in. They said, we're selling the company. And a few months later, company was sold. I didn't have a job. But um, I enjoyed business. And I enjoyed business more than I enjoyed doing the magic shows. But magic shows were fun, by the way. But I really loved business. So a couple of motivational speakers were coming to St. Louis, Missouri, where I live. Uh, that would be Zig Ziglar and Tom Hopkins. Now, Zig I know them both passed. really well. Yeah, Zig was an amazing man. man. Unbelievable. And I got to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I got finished hearing those two men and I said, I can do that. So I bought the book, How to Master the Art of Selling Anything. And I bought Zig Ziglar's audio cassette tapes, See You at the Top. That's what the uh, name of the, I'll never remember. forget all about goal setting. So I just devoured that content and I knew I was going to be a speaker and I was going to start selling myself as a speaker. I had goals set up, a business plan. And I was only 23 years old, but man, this was my career. And within a short period of time, I booked my first speech and then a second speech. And I, I uh, started to do these speeches on customer service. I found out that's what I loved more than anything. Even when I worked in the gas stations, they were self-serve gas stations. However, I would go out and I would help people pump their gas. I would even check their oil, even though that's something we didn't do. I would just you know, deliver great service. I wanted these people to keep coming back and visiting our stations rather than the ones across the street. So that's kind of how it all started. And that was way back in 1983. So I know I don't look that old. Uh, part of the reason is, is I don't have any hair, at least on the top of my head. So <laughs> can't tell if it's gray or not. <laughs> nah, that's a fantastic story. You know, what I really like about what you revealed to us is that customer service is so integral to success of a business, any business. So our typical listener is, you know, a solopreneur, a coach, or a consultant, or someone who's aspiring to be someone like that. And for them, hearing this message is powerful because I know for myself, there was a time when I thought, well, I, I can't really pay all that much attention to customer service. I mean, I can do the basics of making sure my clients are happy, but at the time I was a one-man band. So how can I do customer service? What would you say to a listener who has that thought going through their heads? They're mistaken, aren't they? They are very much mistaken. They're, everybody has two jobs, the job that they're supposed to do, the job that they're hired to do, the job they think they're they're doing, plus the job of taking care of the customer. And under no uncertain terms, that is it. Uh, and, and by the way, this came from Disney. It didn't come from me. I'd love to say, okay, I can modify it and say my modification came from Disney. In Disney, they have three jobs uh, to do the job they were hired to do. And that means if they're an executive, they're executiving. <laughs> is that a real word? <laughs> nice. If That's good. Ticket, I like it. If they're a ticket taker, they're ticket taking. If they're sweeping up the grounds because they're in the maintenance area, that's what they do. Uh, the second job is take care of the guest. Anytime a guest comes into contact with them, they're to manage that in interaction and make it, you know, Disney magic. And the third job 
is that everybody's supposed to keep the park clean. So if you see a piece of paper, pick it up. I say, you know what? Not all of my clients have an amusement park. So let's just focus on the first two. That's brilliant. I love it. I love it. You know, one of the things that Michael and I do together in addition to this podcast is we actually run a a company where we serve people uh, that are members of our audience. And we both realized very quickly that we needed to pay attention to wowing our customer. And since we both realized that we were decent at it, but we weren't real experts at it. We hired somebody, Teresa, you mentioned uh, before the show, and Teresa's become our chief of wow, and her job is to wow our customers. And based on the feedback we're getting, she's doing a pretty good job of doing that. So we're really happy about that. If if we weren't in a position to do that, which at one point we weren't, if we were just on our own, what are some things that you would advise us to do that could really make it simple and easy to wow our customer? Sure. Well, let's define wow. I kind of put wow in the category of customer amazement. So I have a simple definition of what that looks like, which makes it attainable. Oh, but you know, even if you wanted to separate wow, to me, if you're going to wow somebody, you're going over the top. You're going to, you know, go above and beyond and deliver this most incredible service they've ever had. And I don't think that's a realistic expectation day in, day out with every customer. So let's get down to uh, what wow really looks like. To me, uh, and now, I mean, I know you've got your, you know, she's a director of wow, but hear, hear hear me out for a moment. To me, wow happens when there are problems and you can step up and fix them. Mm. When there's a complaint and it's resolved, when somebody has an issue that might not even be your fault, but they call you for help and you're able to help. Amazing customer service is simply service that's a little better than average. But, and this is the important part, it's better than average all of the time. So if, if you know, the bar is for most companies, believe it or not, the bar in most industries is, is pretty low. So to get a little above average doesn't take much. However, it's that consistency that makes the difference. And what you want people to say is, wow, they're always friendly. They're always responsive. They always call me back quickly. They're always so nice. They're always so helpful. And even when there's a problem, I know I can always count on them. The word always followed by something nice is what we're striving for. Mm -hmm. And to get that to happen, you don't need to go over the top. So I want you to be thinking the director of wow means the director of always being above expectations just a little bit. And, and again, that's, you know, the above the bar, just above average. And when you do that, you're absolutely amazing. It's brilliant. Thank you. I mean, that, that uh, often I think we can overthink it and try and, you know, take it way, way, way beyond the bar. And then that's, it's not necessarily getting any, any gains on those higher levels. Right. And you think you've got to do it all the time. The other thing, uh, and I'll give you something a little bit more actionable than just something to think about, is a concept called the moment of truth, which came from Jan Carlson. Uh, He wrote a book by the title Moments of Truth way back in the 80s. And he was managing an airline. He was president or CEO of Scandinavian Airlines. And when he was asked to take it over, they were losing millions of dollars. And what he asked everybody who worked there to do was to manage the uh, moment of truth, which is any interaction that a customer has 
with the company or the employees of the company. So it can be something tiny or it could be something big. But Jan Carlson's official definition of the moment of truth is anytime a customer comes into contact with any aspect of the business and has an opportunity to form an impression, however remote, it's managed and managed well. So you manage the moments of truth and everybody should think about that. Every interaction, how do you answer the phone? Do you welcome somebody into a conversation or you know, do they feel like they're an interruption when they call? When somebody walks through the door, do you just give them eye contact and look back down at what you're doing or do you truly welcome them in? So what are you doing to manage every interaction? Now those are first impressions, but uh, any interaction along the way. And that's very actionable. Be very aware and conscious of all the interactions that you have with your customers. That's really great advice because we often, I find myself, you know, we do events, we do different things where people are coming and going, we're in production sometimes, and it can be very easy to just pay attention to the task at hand, but yet there's customers always around us. And so it's it's one of those, we almost need a poster saying, hey, don't forget, your customer is standing next to you. It's be- about the customer, stupid, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's all about the customer. It's all, about the, it's all about the customer. So connecting with them, really being present with them, and 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 like you say, taking taking it above the uh, just above average. Cool, Shep. You, you know you've been at this a while. Your your uh, success by uh, many definitions, I would say, in the industry. But yet, there's probably a lot of people who could speak on customer success and customer service. How have you differentiated yourself by height? No, no nice. do you know where that line came from? James Comey? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I just said, uh, it's a Caddyshack line, you know. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Yeah, I saw I that movie. Caddyshack. I don't remember How that. Do you separate yeah. yourself from others by height. No, I'm really not that tall, but I'm tall enough. Seriously, uh, I think what differentiates me is, number one, I've been in it a long time. Number two, uh, a lot of people have written books, but I've written a number of books, and some of them hit like New York Times, Wall Street Journal list. Uh, that separates me a little bit. I am not complacent. I am diligent about constantly working on new material. So aside from writing every single week, I write at least three articles a week. I've been very lucky. One of my clients, actually several of my clients now, but one of them started asking me if I would just attend their conference. They would pay for me to sit and and give them feedback on their conferences, you know, what I'm learning at the conference. And you know what they were teaching me? They were teaching me about the latest and greatest in technology and customer service. So I'm a constant learner. And I think that's really important. The other thing is, you know, what separates me probably is recognition. Uh, I'm constantly out there pushing my brand in a positive way. And the way I'm doing it, I, I call it the law of reciprocity. I keep giving and giving and giving. I put a lot of content out there. And if you want to be recognized as an expert in your field, there's several things you have to do. Number one, I believe you have to become that expert. And uh, you may, depending upon that field, need to get your you know, college education, your PhD, your whatever, or uh, you read an awful lot. And I, I, I know I remember back listening to those Zig Ziglar tapes, you know, if you would read one book a week on your craft within a year, you'll be very proficient within two years, you'll be an expert. And I, I mean, those were, I'm rounding numbers. I'm not sure, but basically within three years, you'll become uh, an authority. 
And maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but you take that knowledge and I think you also have to do uh, some application of that knowledge. You have to do research and see how it works in a real life situation. I've been very fortunate to work with amazing companies and every company I work for, even today, is a learning experience. I learn how they do what it is that, you know, I'm passionate about and maybe it is a nuance, maybe it's a difference, but after thousands of clients and gosh, uh, hundreds of books that I've read over the years, uh, I think that helps separate me because I can talk the game as good as anybody and I can deliver a speech uh, that is as good as anybody's speech. But at the end of the day, they wanna have credibility, expertise, and uh, you know, I live and breathe what I do. It, it comes across, and it comes across very powerfully. I really like what you said about being consistent. You know, on the days that we interview amazing guests like you for the podcast, we usually line up at least four, maybe sometimes even five or six interviews in a single day. And what stuns me is how consistent, pardon the pun, the answers are from our guests in terms of what's helped them become successful. Almost everyone we've ever interviewed has said they've kept at it. They've been consistent with working on their craft. They've been like, uh, you know, a Jedi master or a, or a martial arts master that has that beginner's mind. And you've alluded to that. Secondly, they're not complacent. They're always working. They're always thinking. They haven't ever thought they've arrived. They're always thinking they, there's somewhere else to get to. There's more to learn. There's a humility about how they approach their craft and how they approach their area of expertise and thought leadership. And that's something else that came across from what you said. It's seems to me that this commonality among top thought leaders is something that everyone can learn from. And I would imagine, Shep, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that when you saw people like Zig Ziglar and Tom Hopkins, you noticed some of these traits were in place for them. And that's, those are the types of mentors that you learn from. Those were the peers you learn from. Am I wrong? Uh, you know, I think that that's what I'm looking for. I want to, I want to find people that I will emulate. You know, Zig and Tom taught me. I had mentors. And by the way, that's another thing. Everybody should have a mentor. Mentors don't need to be formal mentor agreements like, hey, can I come and sit at your feet once a week for an hour and learn from you? No, they can be, you know, they could be situational mentors. Uh, you know, I view some of the people that I learn from not because I've talked to them a lot, but because they keep writing and I keep reading and I keep devouring their content. They're a mentor in a sense. But I think that's important is, is uh, yeah, and I know I'm getting way off the question that you asked and I apologize for that, but that's what happens with guys like me. <laughs> oh, you're answering <laughs> it beautifully. I love the answer. Shiny object, squirrel. Squirrel, okay. <laughs> But no, I think that, I mean, I, I try also to hang around people that have similar qualities. They're successful, good, you know, forward thinking people. And by the way, they're not negative. Sure, negative things happen in all of our lives. We all get to complain about this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, are they, is, is the glass usually half full or is it half empty, right? Absolutely right. You know, Shep, what you're revealing to me shows me that you're a master in your craft. And here, here's, here's another thought I wanted you to expand upon. 
you went and you worked on your craft, you established what your expertise was in, and then you started to take that out and share it with the world and commercialize it. When did you know you had something commercial and how did you go about turning that expertise into a a paycheck, into money coming in through the door? Sure. So I will tell you how I really, this is going to be a great story. I, I, I really truly smiled and dialed my way into my business. Uh, I went, when I decided I was going to do this, uh, remember I'm only, I just turned 23. Okay. It's the summer of 1983, just turned 23. And I went to the business or I went to the newsstand and bought all the business magazines that I could find. And there were only three or four at the time. I pulled out all the full page ads and I said, if they are, have a full page ad, that means they have a meeting. That means they'll probably hire a professional speaker. But by the way, that's, there's my business model is a lot of what I do income wise comes from me going out and doing keynote speeches. And we also have trainers that work for us that deliver my content. And then we have online training. So that's my business model. But uh, until um, I started hiring trainers, which was many years later, it was me out there doing a speech. So I would call up and introduce myself. I also had a directory of all the local businesses here in St. Louis. Uh, Two businesses stand out, Anheuser-Busch, big company, and Enterprise Rent-A-Car, based here in St. Louis. Anheuser-Busch is now based in Belgium, but at the time they were a St. Louis-based company. And I called St. Louis companies as well. And I'll never forget getting those first contracts. And here's how I know I did a good job. When I was finished, they asked me if I was available for another date. They said, uh, can you come and do this date? We have another opportunity. I knew I was onto something. Now, two years later, one of my idols in the world of customer service was and still is IBM. But back in the 80s, IBM was highest thought of company in customer service. They hired me to do a program. It might've been maybe 86 or, or so, but some a few years after I started, I thought, wow, I'm getting hired by IBM. This is amazing. I must be doing something right. And and I guess the success breeded more success. The success also breeded more confidence. And that confidence said, I've got to keep delivering. You know, I was very lucky. I won a major award in the speaking industry. And I didn't look like it. It's sure it's a milestone and it's a pinnacle, but I kind of felt that it was now an obligation to maintain or even improve on that level. You can't sit back and rest. And that's kind of how I feel about every good thing that's come into my life. It's really remarkable. And it is inspiring as well. You're constantly looking to take that up beyond your your bar, which is you're living, you're living what you're talking about. I'd like to hear a little bit about what you're challenged with in this business. I mean, from 83 to now, think a lot of changes in the marketplace, the way people communicate, all of that, some really great opportunities, but a lot of challenges, I'm sure. I'd like to hear a little bit about those. Sure. First is, I mean, the challenge is obviously there's competition in the world of customer service and customer experience. This is a very easy area for people to get into and compete in in my world. The reason is because everybody thinks they understand customer service. They know what it's like to receive good and or bad service. So there's that competitive thing. But let's talk about a big potential setback I had in 2001. I know that sounds like a while ago, but I think it'll make a lot of sense to you even today. What happened in 2001? 9-11. And I was a professional speaker in the world of customer service. I'd written some books and everything's going along and all of a sudden terrorist attack and all of these clients start canceling their events. 
And some of them didn't, some rebooked, but I realized if this happens again, I'm basically one terrorist attack away from the annihilation of my business. So what could I do to make sure I uh, bulletproof my business for lack of a better term? And I came up with the idea of let's get into training because we don't have to go to a fancy resort and fly all of our people in a plane uh, to a destination uh, to get training. I can fly to their companies and maybe work in their training rooms or their boardrooms. And I realized after I did my first training session, I hated training, <laughs> but I liked the concept of it. So I started hiring other people that could take over and do the training for me. And so now we have some people on staff that that's what they do. Their full focus is to, you know, I may do a keynote speech. They come in later and do the training, or maybe the client just wants training. So one of the challenges I had uh, early on was recognizing, number one, there was limits. Number two, uh, something happens either into the world or even to me personally, physically, that could be a problem. Number three, how do I scale this? So it's not just me it, because I was in a practice and I needed to get into a business. You know, if you cut hair for a living and you don't go in to cut hair that day, you make no money. So uh, the day that I'm not out speaking, I am sitting in my office officially not getting a paycheck. Although if you get to know me, you know that I'm using those days to get business, not just sit around and wait for the phone to ring. So um, I think those are a couple of challenges I've dealt with. Uh, obviously economic challenges. I think uh, if the economy goes down, you have a choice. You can participate in it or you can get creative and figure out how to use it to your advantage. And uh, hey, it, uh, that was what I did. I said, you know, I'm not, I mean, so the economy's going down. This is when my clients need me more than ever. So they can't cut what it is that I've taught them. They need to actually enhance it because guess what? The competition, they're scared with the economy going down and they are going to cut so we can get a leg up on everybody. And that's the way I positioned it. And it worked. It's excellent story. And yes, totally get where you're going. And what's interesting is I, I love your business model and I'm sure the listener right now loves it as well. You're creating the content, you're speaking, you're doing what you love and you found out, hey, I don't really like doing the training. So you've now hired people that are delivering your content. Now that's a, that's a, an advanced move, I would say. What would, you, what would your recommendation be to somebody who's in a similar situation where they have content, they are currently training, but want to have other others come in do that type of work and train their work instead of them being the ones that are do, doing all of the training. Right. So what happens in that situation is uh, you have to trust people to do a great job. So if you see somebody, and I'm just going to take it, if I was a trainer and I, I'm booked to do a particular date and somebody calls and they want me for that same date, now what do I do? I have to turn that person down or can I give them an alternative? If they can't do it on any other date, but they really want the chef material, what I can do is say, hey, I have somebody that can deliver that same material. The cool thing is, is they're a different personality. Uh, they have a different style, perhaps, of, of delivery, but they're going to be able to deliver the same message. Now, what happened, and that was how I, I decided that's a good thing to do. Now, if I'm busy or, you know, I've got, I had one trainer, then I had to have two, then I had to have three. But here's the thing. If you, as, as, as the guy that wrote the book, wrote my own training, I have to know that my people are good enough to deliver that message, but they don't have to deliver it the exact way. So one day I'm out watching one of my trainers do a program and he missed the point. He, he said he, he had a good version of it, but it wasn't my version. And that greatly upset me. 
And I figured I'm gonna have to go talk to him, make sure that he's delivering it the right way. But the client, we went to the airport together. By coincidence, we sat on the airplane next to each other going uh, back to St. Louis. And I said, what did you like the best? And he hit on the point <laughs> that my trainer had missed in my mind. And he said, that was his favorite part of the program. And it was the best idea that he picked up. And I thought, whoa, did I just learn something? Sure I did. Here's a book. Here's the workbook to go with it. As long as you can get people to the end and you've got it, you know, pretty much the way it's supposed to be done, I'll accept nuances on the content. Uh, they can't go off too far because there's a map. I mean, it's the workbook. You have to follow what's in the workbook. But every trainer has a personality that's different. And every so if you bring on consultants, realize they're probably not going to be clones of you. Uh, but that doesn't mean they can't deliver the same results that you do. Shocking. They're not going to be clones of you? I would have <laughs> never thought that. As much as I wanted it to be that way, you know. Uh, so, uh, by the way, uh, we have an online virtual university of my customer service content. And that in and of itself is consistent, you know. So we make sure clients get the same message the same way. But, uh, no, when you're dealing with humans, there could be inconsistencies and even imperfections. But at the end of the day, if we get to the same place and it's successful, we're good. Brilliantly said. Before we get to closing off the interview, there, mm -hmm. is, there, is, a, there is one thing that I, I, I want to get. When you've been doing what you've been doing and you've faced adversity, I know you shared the 9-11 story with us. How do you overcome that? Because many of the listeners listening to this could be in one of several places. I mean, one listener could be someone who's in a corporate job who maybe has tried going out there on their own and doing their own thing as, as a coach and a speaker for a while. It didn't work out. They went back to corporate. They're not feeling good about that. But their dream is still to be out there on their own. Another person could be someone who's a successful trainer, but they're frankly trading time for dollars. And there's no more time, so they can't make any more dollars. And they got to find a way out of that particular business model. And the other person could be someone who owns a business who really likes this whole idea of being a thought leader and being personally branded this way and what it can do for their company. How would you tell them to deal with adversity when it hits them? Well, um, and by the way, um, you know, I, I think I've, I've been one of those people at any given time all the time. <laughs> for <laughs> so, sure. Me too. Uh, dealing with adversity to me is a question of resilience. How resilient are you to things that happen to you? Some people, I mean, God, I mean, I would be devastated if something happened to my kids. I don't know how, I mean, I know I would make it through, but the fact is I know I would make it through where I've heard other people say, there's no way I could go on. And I know maybe they're just saying that because in their mind, they think it's the worst thing in the world. And it is the worst thing in the world. By the way, I'm, you know, as we're, we're having this interview, I'm looking at a picture of you and, and the little baby. That's Michael. You know, yeah. So, yes. Yeah. So son Matthew. I mean, I only, yeah. I mean, you know, that obviously that's precious and probably the most important thing in the world to you. What happens when something gets yanked out from under your feet and you've got a choice? It's, it's what happens to you and how you deal with it to get you to the next level. I've had a few bad things happen to me where it knocked me for a loop, maybe a few days. But the thing is, is I'm resilient and I come back. And I think you need to 
understand resiliency. Perhaps it was listening to Zig Ziglar early on and understanding, you know, maybe it was a little motivational fluff, but I understood, you know, you got to set your goal. You got to have your sights on something. And I'm always thinking, what do I do to get to the next level? What do I do to attain and finish this project on time? And if something bad happens, what do I need to do to get out of this mess? Um, mm. So uh, I have a friend of mine, Jason Selk, Dr. Jason Selk. He'd be great for your show, by the way. Jason Introduce is him a, to us, please. Yeah, he's an MD, but he's really a therapist, uh, MD therapist, and he works and he counsels business people. And he has something called uh, RFS, Relentless Focused Solution, meaning you have to be relentless in coming up with a solution to anything bad that's happening to you. He deals with a lot of athletes. So when a, a, you know, a high paid ball player is, is striking out night after night, not hitting the ball, he goes in and he talks to them and he gets their mindset on a focused solution. Even in the worst times, you can find some little tiny glimmer of light. It just I just came back from a meeting. One of my good friends is Charlie Plum. Charlie, Captain Charlie Plum was in the uh, Marines and he was shot down in Vietnam and he spent six years in a POW camp. Oh my God. Six plus years. And he said, as we're, he tells his stories, he talks about how, yeah, you know, there was a lot of laughs we had back then. I go, laughs? What are you laughing at? He goes, man, that's all you can do. It's like, try to realize that you're going to get out of there one day. You know, you have to have your faith and all that. But, you, you know, it's, that's what these guys do. I don't know how, you know, when you're pushed down to that level, how do you bounce back? Well, I think it's part of it is you're, you know, you're relentless and, you know, you are able to overcome. It's, it's the way you think. I don't know if that's motivational fluff. I'm sorry, but that's really, you know, how it happens for me. That's not motivational fluff. That's, that's gold. Um, you know, it's interesting when you were talking about resilience, I thought of a book written by someone from your state, a fellow Missourian. I think he's actually your governor right now. His name is Eric Greitens. Yes, he is. Yes. He, he wrote a book called Resilience, which I read in January of 2016 before he, he ran for office. I was kind of shocked to see him run for office. I watched his ads. I thought they were hilarious. It was, it was good to I was see. amazed. You know, and, and I get it. You know, and, he's a, and for those that don't know, he's a Navy SEAL. Navy SEAL. Uh, but he is a, a brilliant, brilliant man. Brilliant this man. guy is uh, um, a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> He's amazing. And he wrote he a is. book called Resilience. And I read that book. And it was a series of letters that he exchanged with one of his fellow Navy SEALs who was having a hard time of it when he came back to what they call the world, which is coming back home. And I, I got so much out of reading that book. I took probably 100 pages uh, of notes oh, wow. reading that I'm gonna book. I'm going to go get this book. You, you got to get this book. It's amazing. And you know what? I, I got to contact the governor's office and see if he'll come on our show, not not in his capacity as governor, but as, as someone who wrote this book. And obviously, we'll let him talk about what he's doing for the state as well if he wants to. But he's an amazing guy. He was, he was named as one of uh, Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People at one point. He's done incredible work with um, a lot of charities that help children well, in war-torn countries. Is the veterans that yeah. he, you know, went and and helped and supported and and you know made. I mean, that was his. And I don't remember what it's called, uh, but it was a lot of work with uh, veterans. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a unique and special man. He is a unique and special man. You're very lucky in the state of Missouri to have someone like him be uh, be your leader. But uh, the message of his book, getting back to that, was really powerful. And I think that 
what you just talked about in your answer to my previous question really exemplifies the importance of resilience. And uh, I, I think any you, the listener, if you're listening to this and, and you're facing some adversity right now, if you're back working for the man in a corporate job and you hate it and you want out, or if you just don't have any more time uh, to, to give and you need to find a way to break that model and, 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 and disrupt it and create a new model, that's a powerful message that you can use in order to take yourself to the next level. So I just want to say, Shep, this, uh, this has been a powerful interview. Your, your, your answers have been succinct and, and, and powerful and coherent. And <laughs> Thanks. What, you're welcome. What, what, what I want to do now is ask you to do what we ask every single guest to do at the end of each show, and that is to share with the listener your three top expert action steps that you recommend the listener takes on in his or her life and business to take it to the next level. Could you do that now? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I could talk about customer service, but knowing who the listeners are, that they are people that are uh, they're thought leaders or they're thinking about how do I become a thought leader and, and leverage my expertise to make a living. I'll give you three, three pieces of, uh, I wouldn't call it advice, I call it experience. These are things that I was told or taught to do that I went and did myself. Number one, my first mentor, Bud Dietrich, who uh, passed away a few years ago at, uh, in his 90s, told me that if I work 40 hours a week at getting work, I will get work. In other words, what he was telling me, and I remember I came in as a speaker, he said, basically, this is my paraphrasing it, the job is not doing the speech, it's getting the speech. Hmm. And I can practice my speech and write my speech in the evening and on weekends, but I can't talk to clients on evenings and weekends. So that's the first thing is the job's not doing uh, what it is that you think you're paid to do. The job is getting those engagements. Number two, I wish I'd have done this earlier. And I think everybody can do it. Write a book, write a book. Uh, you know, what, if you're great at what you do and you have a passion for what you do, get it on paper. And today, easier than ever to go to Amazon and work through their create space program and, uh, write a book, learn how to do, uh, learn the process of writing the book through Amazon, very easy, and then go to it and just do it because it'll make you, it'll give you credibility. It'll be your brochure. It'll be a great business card to give away. It's phenomenal. And finally, if you really want to get known, um, you have to keep creating content beyond the book, write. Um, somebody said, and I'll tell you, I was mentoring a, a guy who's gone on to be very successful. And he told me that it was Jeffrey Gittimer who uh, writes a lot. But I know he said, <laughs> Okay. He said, writing is the way to millions. So if you want to be successful and if you equate success with money, I guess millions is, is somewhat successful, but I be, believe a bigger point that he was making is writing will help make you successful. So I agree. I'd always been writing articles and done a newsletter, but today I am, you know, hyper-focused on creating content. And I have a social media, very disciplined, six plus day a week schedule where I have a major event, consistent, you know, Mondays I have an article that I write that, you know, recaps five of my favorite articles the week before. Tuesday, my radio podcast show comes out, Amazing Business Radio. Wednesday, I send out my newsletter to 20,000 people plus post a blog. Thursday, I have a video that goes up on YouTube. Uh, Friday, uh, it's kind of a day of rest, but I have a guest post from somebody in the customer service experience world, which I comment on. Saturday, I write an article for Forbes. That's every week, 
six days a week. And on Sunday, uh, once a month, I do a major video. I call it major. It's not that long, but I, I just talk about a client or a company that I love and what we can all learn from them. So very disciplined. So it's constantly putting out contact or content on a disciplined schedule that creates credibility and adds to your expertise. You would love a guest that we had uh, on the podcast named Joe Polizzi. He wrote, I know Joe. You know Joe? I do know Joe. Joe's Joe great. Is, Joe is one of our people. We love Joe. Man, uh, he, he's, he was fantastic. His, uh, he would love what you're saying, uh, and uh, I love what you're saying. It's absolutely fantastic. So listen, this is the part of the podcast where if there's something you'd like to promote or to pitch, uh, we're happy to have you do that. Have you got anything that you'd like to let our listener well, know about? Well, you know what? If you want to learn more about my virtual training program, go to uh, Shepard, S-H-E-P-A-R-D, virtual training. Um, or you just go to my website, hiking.com. You'll eventually find it. But uh, if customer service is important to you, that's a great way of getting this information. Otherwise, you know, lots of books, just go to amazon.com, type in my name. There I am. So uh, I really appreciate you guys having me on the show. Thank you for this opportunity. Oh, Shep, it's my pleasure. Michael, I know it's your pleasure too. And uh, we just really appreciate that you took the time to be here. You're a fantastic guest, lots of energy, lots of great content. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Shep. Michael Shep Hyken has got to be one of the most high energy, knowledgeable and content rich guests we've ever had. Absolutely. I mean, I was listening to him and I, I could just hear our members wanting to ask him a lot of questions about where he's been, where he's going, all the challenges that he's overcome. I mean, he's been at it for a long time, but he's embracing all of the newest technologies. He's, he's really built an excellent business. He really has. And what, uh, what's amazing about Shep is how consistent his message is and how closely it aligns with so many other top thought leaders that we've interviewed here. You know, um, I was amazed when one of our listeners called me and said, you, you guys get to be like Napoleon Hill did back when he was researching Think and Grow Rich. And I kind of thought, wow, that's true because we get to interview great people like Shep and we get to see the consistencies between his message and people like Joe Polizzi and Dr. Ivan Meisner and Kathy Ireland and so forth. And his message is quite clear. You need to stick with it. You need to keep going at it. You need to not get thrown off course. And if you do that, your thought leadership's gonna emerge, you're gonna be known for it. And that's when you're gonna be able to get this done. And that's a great segue into this wonderful tool we've created to help you, our listener, become established as the authority, as the thought leader, as someone with a very clear personal brand. And that's the 10-step authority marketing blueprint. Right, Michael? Absolutely. And if you're just listening now or you haven't yet gone and downloaded this, it's at authorityrocks.com. 10 steps to build up yourself as an authority in the marketplace. And really, the big benefit here is when you do these things, people start calling you. They're hiring you, and they're coming to you not to see how much you charge, but to figure out how they can get you to come and work for them. And that's an excellent place to be in the marketplace. It really is because it's a point where price doesn't matter. People say, I got to have, I got to get me Michael Palmer. 
get me Adele Spragan. And that's the kind of thing that you want people to, to do. And what's beautiful, Michael, is this plan is on a single page. And as Winston Churchill said, any plan that takes more than a page to explain is too complicated. So this is a powerful yet simple plan that you can implement right away. So go ahead and download it at authorityrocks.com today. And that wraps another episode of the Business of Thought Leadership podcast. To get more information about today's wonderful guest, please go to thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. For more information and to download the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit us at thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Thank you for listening. 